TED Audio Collective. Hey everybody, it's Manoush here. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor Cognizant for supporting this season of ZigZag. We're so grateful. And they're doing some interesting things over at Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work. They are doing research and coming up with best practices for your company and career as things change during these turbulent times. To learn more, head to cognizant.com slash future of work. That's C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T com slash future of work. So do you remember, <clears throat> well, first of all, who are you? Kai. My kid. Indeed. How old are you? I'm 13. Okay. So do you remember when I gave my TED Talk, I guess three years ago? Yeah. And... I don't know if you remember this, but when I showed you my slides for the talk before I went to Vancouver to to deliver it, um, there was the first picture was a picture of you. Do you remember that? No, not really. But it sounds vaguely familiar. And do you remember what you said? No idea. Three years ago. Okay, you said, Mom, I really value my privacy. I don't want you to use that photo of me. Oh boy, we're getting into this now, aren't we? Oh yeah, <laughs> we're getting into this again. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is Zigzag, the business podcast about being human. My son was 10 years old when I gave my TED Talk. By then, I'd been researching, reporting, and advocating for tech companies to act more ethically for several years. I don't share photos of my kids on social media. I've written numerous op-eds cautioning consumers, like you, about those companies' ability to track people and their spending habits from cradle to grave. And so really, why was I surprised when my kid insisted that I remove the baby photo of him in that presentation, which has now been seen over three million times? If you go to TED.com to watch my talk, it's about the importance of boredom and the business models of technology companies that keep us from knowing ourselves. My son and the iPhone were born three weeks apart. Anyway, if you go to TED.com to watch the talk, you will see that the very first slide is a photo of a generic stock photo baby. A baby definitely not as cute as my baby was. And as I say in that talk... My kid and the iPhone were both born in June of 2007. And now that baby is 13 years old. He's in full-on adolescence, still a kid, but showing lots of signs of maturity. Just like the tech industry. No, seriously, some of those companies didn't realize they had any responsibilities to any of us, like kids. We're just a platform, not a media company, they'd say. But this summer, Reddit finally banned some forums for hate speech. Twitter put fact-checking labels on the president's tweets. And Facebook got grounded by advertisers for letting all that misinformation flow on its network. According to the National Institute of Health, adolescence is roughly between the ages of 10 and 19 years old. And it ends when an adult identity and behavior are accepted. 
look, adult behavior for tech companies would include accepting at least some of the blame for the polarization of our society, all the blatantly wrong and dangerous information that they spread, and, oh yeah, creating a new kind of economics, surveillance capitalism that makes money off our every move and data point. Social media companies definitely aren't grown up yet. But they are starting to accept that their actions online have serious consequences in the real world. And maybe they're even learning that building products to reflect the values of your customers and your employees, well, that takes time and deep reflection. A sense of belonging not just to the cult of Silicon Valley, but belonging to humanity. So who are the people who can help them bridge that gap between feats of engineering and network effects and plain old decency and humanity and humility? I think one of those people is this man. My name is Greg Epstein. Uh, I am the humanist chaplain at Harvard and MIT. Greg's job is to convene the smartest young people who are building the next big experiments and technology and get them to think about what it means to live an ethical life. No God involved. But here's the weird thing. Greg recently also got kind of an unusual side gig. In the past year, I've also been working as uh, what's now called the ethicist in residence at TechCrunch, which is a leading publication about uh, tech and Silicon Valley and startup culture. I've been writing a lot of different kinds of pieces uh, for TechCrunch about ethics in the tech industry. Uh, and unfortunately, the lack thereof at times. Seriously. When I, okay, so the way I found you was uh, I read an article, a, an extremely thorough article that you wrote for TechCrunch. <laughs> yeah, my editor said it was one of the longest pieces, mo the, no, the most in depth pieces TechCrunch has ever published. Okay, so the title of it was Will the Future of Work Be Ethical? And I was like, I have to talk to this guy who is not even a journalist, he's a chaplain. And then I discovered, I, I've read a lot about you over the last couple of weeks. Um, can we start with the fact that, because I think it's very crucial to our conversation, that you are a devout atheist, correct? Uh, that's one way to put it. Uh, I mean, I, I <laughs> certainly won't say that's not true. Um, I am uh, a passionate humanist. Uh, I, that's my favorite word to describe what I am. I, I My idea is... And it's not something that I invented or that I'm the only one of. Uh, but humanists, um, we're non-religious people where we're deeply committed to living ethical lives and to trying to figure out together what that means. How did you come about to humanism? Because you, you grew up in New York City, right, as a, as a secular Jewish person? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I, I, I grew up um, in a, a pretty secular uh, Jewish family. And so, you know, religion just – it wasn't really all that important to me growing up. But I got fascinated with it in college because I, I wanted to try to study in college sort of the big questions, not just philosophy from an academic perspective, but – why do we live the kind of lives that we live? Who are we really trying to be? What what kind of society are we actually trying to build and how do we get there? So I was a religion major. I was majoring in Chinese. I wanted to be become a, a Buddhist priest or something along those lines. And, and, and then, you know, even that fell apart. It's like, well, Buddhism is just another religion that was created by people. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up as a humanist. But you have this extremely sort of traditional title as chaplain. I want to know the moment where you were like, oh, I can combine 
my thinking, my wanting to think philosophically about the world with this sort of framework or structure that comes with, that I associate with the word chaplain. Yeah. The title chaplain is something that's uh, conferred on me by Harvard and now also by MIT. And what it really refers to is just the idea that um, institutions like universities or hospitals or military regiments, prisons, etc., have often since, you know, about 100 or more years ago, had people as religious advisors to basically counsel the people within the walls of that institution that maybe can't go and and seek whatever religious institution they would want with their sort of religious freedom as as is ideal in this country according to our founding documents right um and so you know originally those were first just Protestant, then Protestant and Catholic, then Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish. And then around the 1960s, 70s, people started to figure out, wait a second, if we're going to have Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish leaders, advisors, whatever in our institutions, doesn't that have to apply to everybody? And the humanist chaplain at Harvard, the first one was my predecessor. His name was Tom Farrick, and he was the first humanist chaplain at any university in the world. He was here at Harvard for about 30 years. He was a a former Catholic priest who lost his faith and and wanted to do something meaningful with his training. And I met him um, in the middle of grad school about 20 years ago, and I just thought, this is amazing. You can build a moral and ethical community with people where no one individual can ever be the arbiter or decider of what is moral and ethical. That's something that we just have to have a dialogue about and and build consensus around. You can talk about philosophy and ethics and psychology and anthropology as sort of all this one thing that human beings have created to figure out how to live life and what it means to be human. It's part, to me, of what makes a healthy society. So you've been at Harvard for a while when you started um, being a humanist chaplain at MIT as well. Religion, I'm guessing, is probably not a huge part of most of their lives. Yeah, the statistics on who is religious and non-religious in the United States of America as a whole are really changing and evolving very quickly, and and the non-religious population is growing. But at Harvard or at MIT, uh, it's exponentially so almost. It's it's the, the numbers are really skyrocketing. And in some demographic groups within Harvard or an MIT, you know, you'll see something like 70 percent of the students list themselves as non-religious. 70 percent. That's way more than the average in the United States, right? Yeah, it's it's beyond beyond, right? It feels crazy for those of us that studied religion and learned about how America is this supposedly incredibly religious society. But, you know, there it is. And yeah, I had been the humanist chaplain since 2005. I'm still am and, and, uh, you know, have been working with students for a long time and and really across the period of time that we now know as the rise of the Internet, the rise of social media, um, the rise of, of these new industries that have taken over the world. I mean, how else would you say it, right? I mean, what industry is not? basically completely impacted by technology today. Yeah, zero. And so are you finding that there is some sort of gap that you need to fill for these students who are at clearly a, a very crucial 
point in their lives when they're trying to figure out who they are and what will give them meaning, but they also probably have crazy amounts of student debt. And they're also some of the smartest, most, I mean, they're the people that build these amazing tech platforms and apps and the hardware as well. That seems like an incredibly vulnerable place to be. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a big question, right? First of all, I would say um, I sometimes admire and sometimes feel badly for students that end up in that position where, you know, where we all talk about them as the um, the most brilliant, the, the best, the ones that, you know, that build everything, right? In the last couple years, few years, I would have these dinners for students at my house and um, it would be these really diverse and interesting groups of students that come from um, less privileged backgrounds young people that really had to work tremendously hard to get here and to often, you know, show up here and navigate things for themselves that that other students would take for granted because it's just all been spoon-fed to them throughout their life. And what boggled my mind when I would be having dinners like that, you know, I'd start asking like, so, you know, tell me about what what kinds of futures you have in mind for yourselves, what kinds of um, experiences, you you know, you think would be most meaningful to you in the next few years. I'm, I'm always... I'm a sucker for trying to get people to reflect on that. And um, I would have these same students that say to me, oh, I want to be the next Elon Musk. Doesn't everybody? It had just taken over. It was it was like some massive a dose of Elon Muskism had been poured into the water that was running through the faucets at, at Harvard. And um, and I, I was trying to figure out why why is that? What does that change represent? What I found was this this sense that technology is the thing that's going to liberate us. It's the thing that's going to enrich us. It's the thing that's changing the world right now. It's it's the thing that we should all be paying attention to. And I started to realize from my background studying religion, if you look at what we call tech, capital T, or the tech world – it's different than uh, than an industry. It's different than a country. It's different than a lot of things. To me, it seems a whole lot like a religion. It's got its structures. It's got its hierarchies. It's got its myths. It's got its sacred texts. It's got its rituals. It's got its costumes. Um, <laughs> it's it's you know holidays. We've created a society that is basically in the interest of corporations that want to sell us products, that want to sell us identities, that want to sell us beliefs, that want to sell us a feeling like, oh, yeah, I've got my community through these you know, purchases that I make. And um, it plays into the interests of really powerful people who exploit us. It's just about acknowledging that the industries that we're all sort of trapped inside of right now because of our lives online, because of our, our, our enmeshment with technology – these are the industries that are, are basically shaping what it means to be a human being. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Greg explains his own white man epiphany and why he thinks so many of us believe that we have to be so damn special. It's exhausting, right? Be right back. Thank you. 
Hey, everybody, it's Manoush here. Many thanks to Cognizant for sponsoring this season of ZigZag. Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work researches issues very near and dear to my heart. They examine how work is changing and how it will change in response to new technologies, what workers need, and, of course, big global events. Their recent report called From Two dives into the 42 ways technologies, business models, and demographics are shifting how we work. Information you need to better understand the future of your work and business. To read this report and more, head to cognizant.com slash future of work. That's C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T dot com slash future of work. Okay, so Greg Epstein, the chaplain turned tech crunch columnist. He's been taking all he knows about religious studies and community building and journeying into the belly of the Silicon Valley beast. He definitely has a different, more humane perspective on what's going on there. So I just felt a kind of calling or just an immediacy, an urgency to get involved in that and to try to be part of something that's helping shape all of that technology, all of that effort and industry in in a positive direction. Because right now, it, it strikes me that there's a lot of discontent and a lot of stress in, in, in the tech industry that is leading some of these leaders to take it out on you and me. I've been trying to kind of take my skills as a chaplain and community builder and apply them there, like facilitating discussions like that among people who are trying to figure out what their career in tech should look like or or what our industries ought to look like. And it's given me this opportunity to meet with executives in tech companies, to meet with VCs, to meet with um, scholars of of the ethics of technology, critics of tech companies, um, employees of the various companies at at literally every level from um, interviewing uh, Uber and Lyft drivers to, you know, interviewing uh, major executives and, you know, People are definitely realizing right now that there's this very dangerous but also potentially inspiring moment where people are, are, are not content to let these companies be what they've been. So this show is really about, you know, it's called ZigZag, and it's about how people are changing things up because they have a similar sort of awakening that you described, that they want their work, they want their business to reflect what their values are in their life. And so we're really trying to map the individual journey that people are on to the the greater economic business journey that, that, that our country is on, how technology has really changed what work and business are in some ways. And I guess I'm wondering, like, what are the questions that you pose to people to help them try and sort themselves out and figure out ways that they can pay the bills but they can also adhere to the values that they know they have deep inside. And it sounds like you're trying to get them to question that maybe they ha- might have to give up some of their power. Um, yes, uh, we all might, um, those of us who have it. Um, look, I, I think this question of, you know, the idea that you have to work 24-7 and that you can't sort of go home to anything beyond just your career because you're so obsessed with, you know, your career and making a mark in it. Um, it's something that I've been observing for certainly the 16 years or so that I've been at Harvard. And, you know, really the fact that I ended up at Harvard in the first place is reflective of anything of the fact that I've been observing that my whole life. I've been around ambitious people and I've been an overly ambitious person myself. 
And, you know, my mom, when I was growing up, my mom was a a refugee from Cuba, um, came here by herself with nothing at at age 13 and was separated from her family and, um, you know, had to learn English from the start from scratch as a teenager and and became a hippie and all sorts of things. And, and, um, and, you know, she would try to get me to chill out um, as a as a student um, in, in high school or college. Yeah, she'd be like, why are you working so hard? Why are you trying to be the best all the time? Like, would you please go out, go to a party, have a drink, take a drug, whatever you're going <laughs> to just just relax. <laughs> you know, and I'd be like, no, mom, I, I want to, you know, I, I was I was um, doing speech and debate competitions at the time. <laughs> and I was like, I want to be the national champion. Like, I, I have no idea why I decided that I wanted to be that. Yeah, where um, did that come from? Like, where did that drive come from? I, OK, you know, do you want it in psychological terms where it came from? Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah OK, so um, so there's a psychologist earlier in the in the 20th century. Uh, her name was Alice Miller, and she wrote a book called. Um, the drama of the gifted child that I think has a lot of insight into this sort of phenomenon that we observe around places like Harvard and MIT. And basically what it says is a lot of us got this message that we need to be obsessed with excellence. We need to be obsessed with success. And um, we're running around maniacally pursuing it, you know, to the detriment of our entire society. And and what Miller said um, in that book is that essentially we got this message that our parents didn't mean to give to us or, or, you know, our loved ones in other cases didn't mean to give to us, but they nonetheless did, which is the kid does something and does something that, that indicates promise, right? You know, the, the little kid writes her first poem or she, you know, solves her first math equation or she, you know, says something or does something that, you know, that make the parent think, oh, you know, look, my kid is brilliant. My kid is is all the things that I'm hoping they'll be. And they would say something to the kid um, basically to reward them for their little accomplishment, their intelligence, their outstandingness. Right. But then what happens is the kid gets the message that, oh, yes, I'm loved, but I'm loved for what I just did. I'm loved for what I just demonstrated, that I'm special, that I'm unique, that I'm brilliant, that I'm a genius, whatever it is. And the kid sort of ultimately gets the idea, absorbs the idea from their family, from the culture, that that's the only way to truly be loved because being average is not good enough. Being special is what everybody seems to be looking for. But the kid, we all do have this intrinsic sense that – you know, we're not special all the time. Nobody is special all the time. That's the very definition of the the concept of special, right? And so the, the kid knows, like, uh, I'm kind of faking it here in some ways. And then you sort of internalize, oh, yeah, well, I got to continue to fake it. Otherwise, I'm not going to be loved. And if I'm not loved, then I'm not worthwhile. And if I'm not worthwhile, then what am I? And so you have all of these people in our culture who are running around trying to be special, trying to be brilliant, trying to be loved for their exceptionalism when by definition, you know, nobody can be exceptional all the time and and there's just not enough love out there in the world for a society where everybody needs to be exceptional. And I just think, you know, if we're trying to diagnose what's in the water in places like where I'm sitting, um, that's what it is. And it's in highly concentrated doses in what we call the tech world today. You've got toxic masculinity, you've got racism, you've got cutthroat 
business models right and left. And what it really comes down to, you know, from a psychological perspective, I'd argue, is this idea that we're trying to prove, so many of us are, that we are special and exceptional so that we won't suffer the fate of being average or or worse, um, which is just psychologically unacceptable. And so, you know, you've got people trying to make millions and billions. You've got people trying to to, to show, uh, um, you know, how brilliant they are. You've got people trying to, you know, to create the next unicorn. You know, the center cannot hold. It's too much. We're, it's going That kind of world will eventually um, and sooner rather than later really collapse under its own weight. I think you called it in one of your pieces the official pathology of the Protestant work ethic. <laughs> yeah. And that really resonated with me. And you said, left unexamined, though, it leads us to constantly try to demonstrate our worth by outworking people, out-earning them, and outgrading them. We rarely stop to simply connect with other normal human beings or to allow ourselves to experience vulnerability. I think I cried when I read that, actually. Oh. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, the the question that I have for, for people in tech or, or people at Harvard or MIT, and I'm trying to, to work this through in my own life too is, you know, does it really have to be that way? Like, do we really have to keep pushing or could we not build a society together where we feel enough of a sense of community, we feel enough of a sense of just being loved for being human that it's not so important to work all the time to sort of bludgeon ourselves to death with work all the time because we're getting enough of what we really need as human beings from one another. I mean, look, I didn't get it at all until my son was born um, in 2016. And, and so, you know, by that point, I had already been a chaplain at Harvard for 10, 12 years. And, you know, I was pretty steeped in this culture. And, you know, like, I wanted to ask these meaningful questions to people about, you know, what is a human life worth and um, what should we really believe and, and all that. I think I, I was right about the God or not God part from my own, you know, perspective. But what I was wrong about was just this, you know, I, I, I had this feeling that even as a chaplain, I had to prove my greatness to people. I had to prove my exceptionalism to people. I, you know, I had to be the best chaplain. Like, what is that even, Right. But, you know, it's hard to admit, but I have to admit it. Like, that's where I was. And then my son was born. And I didn't think that I was going to be a a particularly great father, especially of a young kid. Like, I'm my mom's only, and uh, I was pretty much the youngest person in in my entire family. I was never around babies. Babies were like my phobia. I, I just felt like I couldn't even go near them. Anyway, so... My son is born and just give me a second. I, I, I know I want to tell the story, but it, it's, it's sort of tough to talk about. Um, huh. um, anyway, so my son is born and um, my wife had had a really difficult pregnancy um, where uh, she was pretty badly physically injured. Um, by the the process of giving birth, and um, I'm you know by the bedside in the operating room, this sort of an emergency operation, and um, she's basically out of it uh, when they take my son out of her, and you know they they kind of hand me to him, to him to me, really they hand me to him, 
<laughs> and, um, I, you know, I, I reach out to touch him and his little tiny fist grabs my pinky and surrounds it. And, you know, I know now and I really knew in a sense then even that that's just sort of a biological mechanism, right? Like, like a, a, you know, that's sort of built into a, 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 an infant's brain to do that or a newborn's brain to do that. But it felt to me um, like a profound life-changing moment where um, what I realized was this. Um, I realized in that moment having had – um, a mom who had a really trauma-filled life and childhood and having had a dad who was also like profoundly traumatized, sick most of my childhood, died when I was a teenager, um, really didn't know how to love me or even communicate with me and, and, and sort of had felt spent my entire life like trying to prove stuff to people. My son took my pinky at that moment and I realized like I am going to love you for the rest of your life and I, I could not care less like what you accomplish, what you do, who you are, you know, in any external sense, just completely for existing and only for just existing as my son. I love you. Mm. And I'd never had that feeling before. Like people had, you know. Especially like I went to divinity school for goodness sake, like people talk about unconditional love, you know, over breakfast every day, you know, and like I honestly never really understood what that concept meant. And so, you know, now I understood it. And I think we every single human being deserves that. And it's absolutely infuriating um, and um, horrifying that so few of us have it. This is a country, let's call it as, as it is. You know, this is a country that, um, as the New York Times so brilliantly put forward um, in its magazine a few months ago, where our founding myth is the myth of 1619, where, you know, this is the country whose identity was not shaped by the Declaration of Independence in 1776. This is a country that was shaped by the narrative that we can bring other human beings here and exploit them for their entire lives for our gain. This is, this is a country where, ugh, um, where systemic racism and gender exploitation too, right? The lack of, of rights to women has basically made us what we are. It's what made us this economically dominant power. And it's what made us so fundamentally morally flawed. And the tech companies are the sort of chief means of delivering it in, in this 21st century economy. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Manoush. Chaplain Greg Epstein. I love him. So I checked in with Greg right before this episode was about to go out, just as Harvard was deciding that virtual learning is indeed going to continue for the next academic year. Greg's been really worried about his students 
But he says that he's already seen what he thinks could be a positive change in some of their outlooks on life and work. He recorded a message for us. There's been this tremendous confusion, a uh, kind of whiplash, the, the bends, you could say, where students have had to cope with protests and their own physical safety and health and where to live and how to afford living there. And, uh, you know, also just what to do with life, the, the, the simpler pace of life that we've, uh, many of us uh, witnessed these past few months, the, the idea that, you know, it's okay to just sit around at home and talk to your family and cook a meal and take a walk, which for uh, a huge bunch of overachievers, like I'm used to hanging around with at a place like Harvard or a place like MIT, is just a really big deal. There's this this idea that there is a different life out there that, that doesn't require as much money, that doesn't demand as much uh, external sign of success um, or proof of success, but rather is about nurturing other humans. To all you college students out there, my four nieces included, this great reset of society that's happening I hope you can think of it in some ways as an incredible opportunity to help us all get on track to a more equitable world. Okay, so we are now officially halfway through season five of ZigZag, and I have a favor to ask. Could you please take just a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you're listening to? I know it's annoying, but it makes a huge difference for letting more people know about the show, and I would so appreciate it. And while you're there, hit subscribe so you get next week's awesome episode, which I am calling The Troll Slayer. Carrie Goldberg, her story of becoming the lawyer she needed and changing the laws for all of us. I, I can't really decide if it was like bravery or craziness, but I quit my super stable job at a nonprofit and started the law firm with the whole goal of just serving people who are dealing with a psycho stalker. I love how Carrie has built this thriving business solo and she's changing society at the same time. Oh, and I almost forgot. I linked to the article I mentioned earlier that Greg wrote that I love so much and lots of other stuff in the newsletter. You should subscribe. Go to zigzagpod.com. I will not spam you. I will protect your privacy. Also, here's my question for you this week. You know, Greg is this weird combo of chaplain and tech writer. Is your life a weird combo of jobs that unexpectedly complement each other? Or are you thinking about combining two jobs in an unusual way? Please tell me about it. Record a voice memo. Send it to zigzag at stableg.com. The email is zigzag at stableg.com. That's S-T-A-B-L-E-G.com. Credit for making this episode possible goes to David Herman, Maria Wartel, Dan DeZula, Armin Zamarodi, and Kai Robin. Also, thank you to Jen Poyant. 
So much gratitude to my partners at TED for all their support too, because ZigZag is a member of the TED family of podcasts, and it comes from Stable Genius Productions. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for being here and listening. Can we record again, please?